While those are going out, I want to welcome everybody here. And if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we're really through the past uh, several weeks, we've been in a short series on the Psalms. Uh, We've been going through different Psalms every week. And today we're actually going to finish that series with Psalm 51. So go ahead and get ready to turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 51. We'll get started in just a minute. I want to remind us of something on the front end of what we're going after today and really every week when we gather as the Church of Jesus. Now, this is going to be nothing new to you, uh, most of you that are here week after week, but I want to remind you of what we're going after. Who believes that God can speak to us in the next hour? Who believes that? Confident. Okay. Why do we believe this? Because the guy standing in front of everybody is awesome. No. That's not why we believe this. Okay. We believe this because of this book that stands between me and you. These are the words of the living God. Amen. We affirm and believe with the church of Jesus that all Scripture, listen, is, present tense, is breathed out by God. Not was. It's hot breath from His mouth as we read it. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And here's what we're going after. We want to hear God speak to us. If God doesn't speak to us, why are we even here, right? So, God speak to your church today. That's our prayer. That's what we're going to ask God to do in just a minute. And really, this demands something from me as a preacher and from you as a hearer. Okay, so let's talk about what it demands of me first, right? If we want to hear God speak to us today, that means I'm not going to shove gimmicks, tricks, and jokes down your throat for the next hour, right? We want to hear God speak. That means that me, as a preacher of God's Word, I have to stick to the text. I have to stick close to what God said. And by God's grace, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to do that. But what does it demand of you as a listener to hear God speak to you? Okay? It demands, Ryan calls this leaned in or laid back. Uh, you ever heard him say that before? What it demands of us as listeners of God's Word is not like we're sipping coffee, lean back, you know, enjoying a football game. It demands that we, with eagerness, somebody prayed this a minute ago, with eagerness, like Bereans, we lean in to hear the words of God. Why? Because something's happening more than a man talking to you. God the Holy Spirit is speaking as we're reading His Word. So unless God does that today, we meet in vain. But God feeds His church week after week. So let's call on God as a church. Okay, I'm going to voice this prayer, but I want you to pray it with me. God, speak to me. And God, speak to my neighbors, speak to those around me, feed us with what we need from your word today. Let's pray. Father, we gather together in Jesus' name this morning. God, we thank you that we are your people. We thank you, God, that we come to you and a finished eternal work has been done on our behalf. And we are yours forever, Lord, because of what you've done. God, thank you for this glorious grace. And we ask, Lord, that You would help us to never get over it, Lord, to never move past what You've done for us. Be praised, Lord Jesus, in Your church today. Be highly exalted. God, we are unto the praise of Your glory. God, and we pray that You would allow us, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that You would allow us to linger over Your words today, Lord. And God, we pray that You would thunder from Your Word in our souls, in our hearts, God. God, we pray that You would do whatever needs to be done all across this room, God. God, we pray that You would humble the proud in this room, God, that You would break them with Your Word, God. With Your powerful Word, Lord. In love, in grace, God, we ask You to break us down, Lord. 
God, we ask that You would get the attention of the idol in this room today, Lord, through Your Word, God, that You would arrest our attention by the power of Your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that You would heal the humble and bind up the humble in this room today. That You would bind up wounds, Lord. That You would bind up consciences, God. That You would administer Your grace to Your people, Lord. Come feed us with what we need. And come be the chief shepherd in your church. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, let's start with Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And we're going to read this together and it's a good chunk. So I just want to remind you on the front end. We're about to read Psalm 51. But we're going to listen as though we were being addressed by God Himself. Because we are. Because we are. This is the Word of God. Psalm 51. Read it with me. Get your eyes on it with me. Psalm 51, the heading. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Will you not be pleased with a burnt offering? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then... Will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Alright, let's dig in this morning. Let's talk about Psalm 51 for a minute. And it's going to take us a little while longer than it normally would to get to our text this morning. we got some background work to do. So hang tight. When I start into point number one on your outline, okay... We're about halfway finished, so don't worry about that. Alright, on the front end. Let's do some unpacking. This is one of seven psalms that, is, that, are, that are known as the penitential psalms. 
in the book of Psalms, one of seven. And what that means for us as the church is that God has given us a gift. These seven Psalms, this is one of them. This is a gift to the church of Jesus of songs that teach the people of God about repentance. About repentance. Now, we all have a stake in learning something about repentance in this room this morning. Why? Because we, every one of us in this room has some things in common this morning. And you say, what do I mean? Here's one. Every one of us in this room from this moment can look back in our past. And we have a past that's literally littered, polluted with sins against God. Okay, There is no one in this room that is an exception to this rule. Okay, We have a sinful past, littered. Second thing we have in common is that at present we have indwelling sin within us at this moment. Okay, So everybody in here has a stake for learning what God says about repentance in His Word. And Psalm 51 is going to teach us that. It's a song that teaches sinners to confess their sins to God. Okay, Now let me say this. Most of us in this room are believers in Jesus. This is the church. We are the people of God. And what that means for us this morning is that you, in Christ Jesus, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you are justified in Jesus. You have a right standing before God. You have been pronounced righteous before God the judge. All of your sins are forgiven. They're gone. They're done. They're over with. Okay? But... But, even though that's true, Jesus commands Christians to ask for forgiveness of sins. Okay? Listen to this. In in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, this is in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says this, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And so maybe you're asking this question, maybe you've asked it before. What in the world is a justified sinner doing asking for forgiveness from God? It's already done. Okay, What's going on here? How are we supposed to think about this? Okay, And the answer lies in who the Lord's Prayer is addressed to. Jesus told us to pray like this. Our Father. Okay, Jesus commands Christians to ask the Father for forgiveness, not the judge. Okay, and what that means for us as the people of God is that when we sin as Christians, God the judge is once for all judicially satisfied on our behalf. There is no more condemnation. There is no more legal punishment for us because of what Jesus has done for us. Okay, That is true forever. Drive it in your soul. No more condemnation. Amen? At the same time, the Bible teaches that when we sin... As Christians, our Heavenly Father is relationally offended. Our sins displease God. Okay, So Christians are commanded by Jesus to ask for forgiveness. And we, even after we get saved, we need to learn what God says about repentance and about confessing our sins to God. When we sin... We break fellowship with God. We lose intimate relationship with God. I just long for this for myself and for you. I long to walk closely with Jesus. I long to press in to the holy place and know my God. And I long for that for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to walk with God. Okay? And there is an intimacy that, that is to be had with Jesus that is impossible apart from us walking in repentance toward our indwelling sin. So I want us to learn this well 
as a local church, as the people of God. I want us to learn about confession. I want us to learn about repentance of sin. But I also want to address another group this morning. Okay, so if you're here this morning, and you're not a member of Grace Community Church, and you're here this morning, and you, and you come in, you're really not a Christian at all. Okay, If you're to be really honest with yourself, that you not, not, a, not just a cultural Christian, but you know this morning that you are not a new creation in Jesus. So I want to talk to you this morning. I, I want to encourage you uh, this morning by clarifying something in your life. And maybe you're thinking like, dude, you don't even know me. Like, like we, we hadn't even had a conversation. How do you think you're going to clarify something in my life? So let me, let me say this to you. God has made this really clear in His Word that God knows your greatest need in the universe. If you're outside of Christ this morning, I want to I encourage you with this. That your greatest need in the entire universe, your greatest need is to get right with God the Judge. Okay? This need pales okay, in comparison to every other need that you think you have, your felt needs, whether they be physical or financial or family or mental, whatever it is. Okay? Your greatest need, if you are outside of Christ this morning, is to get right with God the just. So let's talk about that. That judicial penalty that we just talked about that was removed for the believer. Why is this your greatest need? Because God still owes you that, that judicial punishment this morning. God, the God who, who can never lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And this God who can never lie has promised to punish all sinners with condemnation. There is a legal punishment for your sin. And your greatest need this morning is to have that legal punishment removed. Okay? And the good news that we have for you today is that there's one other person in the entire universe that this legal punishment can fall on beside you. Your punishment for your sin will fall on you or it will fall on Jesus Christ. We promise you that. Okay? It will fall on you or it will fall on Christ. And in order for your punishment to fall on Christ, you need to know what the Bible says about repentance and faith toward Jesus. And Psalm 51 is going to lay that path for us this morning. It's going to show us the pathway of repentance. So every one of us in this room are leaned in and listening of what God says in His Word about repentance. So let's go to Psalm 51. The background for Psalm 51 is a godly man walking in wicked sin before God. Okay, It's one of those... Things that make you scratch your head when you're reading the Word of God. That what do we know about David? King David, the second king in Israel. What we know about him is he was greatly loved by God. He was beloved of God. God made a covenant promise to this man. David was loved by God and David loved God. Okay, He loved by God and he loved God. And then today, we're going to zone in on this one little piece of his life. Okay, Probably his darkest moment on planet earth. We're going to zone in on this morning. Look at your heading of Psalm 51. And it tells us where, where this psalm comes from. It pinpoints it. We don't have to guess. We know exactly what's going down when we read Psalm 51. Look at the heading. It says it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so this morning, God's going to take the sin of King David, of this man that loved God, and he's going to broadcast it 
for every one of us to look at and to see. Really, it's broadcasted in the Word of God for the entire world to look at this massive fall in His life because God wants to teach us something from His sin. God wants to teach us something from this story. Okay, So I want us to read a little more than what we have in our heading. And I want us to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is where this goes down. This is where David's sin with Bathsheba happens. And it's a vivid story. So we're going to read several verses from chapter 11 and then some from chapter 12. As we read this, I want every one of us to be reminded to be on guard against sin. That's one of the things that's supposed to happen as we read this story. This can happen to you. You are not above falling into temptation. So let's remember that. Let's pick it up in verse 2. Pick it up in verse 2. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and he and, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So I want us to back up. Let's, let's catch up to where we're at in the story. We just read in, word, in God's Word about a man that loved God, that willingly, knowingly slept with another man's wife. Do you see that? Are you warned that a man after God's own heart fell in this way? Willingly, knowingly slept with another man's wife. Why? But I want you to I want you to, I want to highlight something about this story that too often we overlook. Okay? David didn't just oops, I sinned and and it was a one time thing. There is a prolonged rebellion in David's life during this season. Now I'm gonna pull that out. Here's what I mean. Okay, let's 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 keep walking into this story. David walked in prolonged rebellion to God. Here we go. Several weeks. It would take at least a couple of weeks, several weeks, after this act, this adulterous act for this woman to know that she was now pregnant. Okay, we agreed there. Several weeks that repentance could have happened, confession could have happened, but it didn't. Okay? David walks in prolonged rebellion to God. And then the news comes that a child has been conceived from this adulterous act. Okay? And instead of confessing his sin, instead of repenting of his sin, David devises a plan to cover up his sin. Okay, If you've read this chapter, you know how it goes. His plan is this. He has devised a plan to bring the woman's husband back into Jerusalem. And his plan is to have the husband and the wife sleep together so that the child now looks like her husband's child instead of his. Plan to cover up his sin. Okay, And so he does this. He brings her husband named Uriah. Now this man is a warrior in Israel. And he brings him off the battlefield into Jerusalem for his plan to go down. But his plan backfires. Okay? 
Uriah is such an honorable man, such an honorable soldier, that he literally refuses to sleep with his wife, even to sleep in his house, while his fellow soldiers are still fighting a war on the battlefield. Okay? This all, all this exchange with Uriah coming there, coming back, is given time for David to repent of his sins, confess his sins to God, but he does not. And defiant rebellion to God, David devises a plan to cover up his sin even further. Look at verse 15. David sends Uriah back to the battle with a letter with these words. Verse 15. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Instead of repenting, instead of confessing his sin, David adds murder to adultery. Adds sin to sin. And he has an honorable man murdered at the hands of God's enemies. And then to top it all off, at the end of this chapter, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. He slept with the man's wife, had the man killed, and did what he wanted to do. Defiant rebellion against God. He could have confessed. He could have repented, but he has hardened himself in stubbornness to God. This is a man that loved God. Okay? And what I want to point out to you from this story is he remains in unrepentant rebellion for almost a year. For almost a year. You say, how do you know that? Because later on, part of God's judgment on David for this season is God's going to put to death this son that was conceived. Okay? So David doesn't repent and confess of this sin until this baby that's conceived is actually born. That's, that's ten months. Okay? We're almost out of year. And that's if the baby is a newborn. If it's a couple months old, it's even longer than that. Almost a year, this man that loved God walked in defiant rebellion to God. Do you know that this can happen to you? Do you know that this can happen to you? Are you warned by this? But God saw all the things that David did. David thought he got away with what he did. He thought he got what he wanted. But God saw what he did. And verse 27 says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So you have David, a man that loves God in defiant rebellion to God. And you have the Lord displeased in what David has done. And I want to remind you of the character of God, the nature of God. God has promised that He disciplines who? Those He loves. And He loves David. Okay? So God is about to enact His promise. God is about to discipline those He loves. What David did displeased the Lord. And, and God is about to discipline David. How does He do it? The very next chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends a man full of His Holy Spirit. His name was Nathan the prophet. And God sends this man to Nathan with a message. It was a strong rebuke for, Nathan, for David's sin with a judgment. Okay, And this was God's discipline to him. And this prophet of God full of the Holy Spirit, fearless, fearless, opens his mouth to the king of Israel. And 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9 says this. Why, king of Israel, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what was evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite 
with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Okay? With those words, God woke David up. Okay? God, the conviction of God's Holy Spirit rested on that rebuke from the prophet and God woke David up out of his defiant rebellion. Okay? And conviction came upon him. That is exactly where Psalm 51 fits in. David is now under the conviction of God. His sins have now been exposed to God. And Psalm 51 tells us what this felt like. Okay? And it felt miserable and it felt terrible. Okay? But conviction from God, it might feel painful, but this is an act of grace from God. God disciplines those He loves. This is no different than a kid touching a stove that's hot and feels a recoil. God does that in the lives of those He loves. He gives us a recoil for sin. He disciplines us. Okay? So the conviction of God is actually an act of grace from God. And this is rock bottom for, for King David. But it's also the beginning of where God begins to turn this man around. And this is what we want to learn well. We want to learn this process well of restoration from sin, of restoration from rebellion. Here's what I mean this morning. I wonder if there's anyone here today in a similar place to where David is. Okay, And don't do this. Don't be sitting there thinking, well, well man, I, I didn't commit adultery. I, I didn't have any kill, anybody killed. I'm, I'm doing pretty good today. Do not do that. Okay, Don't do that. Don't, don't, don't make yourself feel better about your sin because your sin doesn't, doesn't match up side by side to David's. God gave us this story as an example for you. So don't do that. Don't make yourself feel better that you might not think you're as bad as David. Okay? Lean in and listen what God would have to say to you today. Is there anybody in this room that has ignored certain specific sins in your life? Is there anybody in this room that has things, sinful things in your life that, that are unconfessed, that are unrepented of before God? I wonder if there's anyone here that the Lord would address this morning. And if, and if you're here and you're a Christian, here's the promise from God's Word. You have no hope of evading God's discipline in your life. The Lord disciplines those he loves. God will get your attention. He knows exactly how to do it. Okay? God made King David miserable in his sin. Okay? This is the process. He knows how to get our attention. Why did God make David miserable? Why did God do that? Okay? God desired to restore the fellowship between David and God, but why the necessary miserable Psalm 51 attitude? And this is something that we need to learn. As Christians, as disciples of Jesus, and this is something that you need to learn if you are outside of Christ this morning. Okay? It is impossible to be in fellowship with God with inappropriate thoughts toward sin. God had to take David through a process where David thought right thoughts about sin before David was restored to fellowship with God. And here's what I mean you cannot come to Christ. Okay? You cannot come to Christ. 
Sometimes it's wide open. Like you can come to Christ whenever you want. You cannot come to Christ if you have flippant views of sin. Jesus is a Savior of sinners. He is sent by God to save sinners. Not to save the self-righteous. Not to save those who don't think they don't need saving. You cannot come to Jesus with flippant views of sin. If you are ever to be saved, you have to think rightly about sin. To the believer in this room, if you are ever to walk with Jesus in an intimate way, in closeness with Jesus Christ, you have to think right thoughts about sin. Proper views of sin lead to proper views of Jesus. And the Puritans used to quote, they coined this phrase, and I love it. And they said, where sin is bitter, Christ is sweet. The, the, the more wicked you see sin, the more glorious you see Jesus. Jesus makes absolutely no sense to you unless you understand sin. Where sin is bitter, Christ is sweet. Psalm 51 is a picture to us of what it looks like when a man begins to think rightly about sin and feel rightly about sin. Okay? So this is the model of repentance. This is what it looks like. You've heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. Okay? I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that this is a picture of what it looks like. Okay, This is what it looks like when God's conviction falls on a man, when, when, a, when a repentant heart is being expressed. This is what it looks like. And let me say this to sober you up. Okay, Woe to you. And I mean that. Woe to you if you know nothing of the type of Psalm 51 attitude towards sin that we're going to unpack today. Woe to you. Okay? This is, this is, this, you cannot know Jesus apart from hating sin, mourning sin, okay? Crying out to God for forgiveness of sin. Woe to you if you know nothing of what we see in Psalm 51 this morning. So let's learn. Let's, let's, let's allow God to teach us from His Word of what repentance looks like. Psalm 51, let's dig in. Point number one on your outline. Here's what it looks like. Repentance looks like pleading for forgiveness to the God of all grace. Repentance looks like pleading for forgiveness to the God of all grace. And this is actually repeated twice in Psalm 51 because it's so central. You see these requests made of God in verse 1 and 2, and the exact same requests are repeated again to God in verse 7 through 9. It's repeated because we need to learn this one well. Okay, Pleading to God for forgiveness... Verse 1, David knew something that we all need to know. This is how he starts out his repentant prayer to God. He knew that he had no chance to appeal to God's justice because he knew that he was guilty before God and that he deserved God's judgment. He knew that he had no chance of appealing to God's righteous justice. So David opens his mouth in verse 1 and he cries out that God would be merciful to him. Be merciful to me, Lord. Be gracious to me, Lord. This is what he's crying out to God. Now, that man is the king of Israel. He is the king of the people of God. And the first thing that we see him doing is he's like a beggar in the presence of God. This man, has he's ridded himself of all merit. He has no claims on the grace of God. And like a beggar, he's fallen down before God and pleading for grace and mercy. We have to learn that posture well. We have no claim on the grace of God. 
God, God is not. Sometimes we think about God as the grandfather, and it's, it's His job to forgive people. Okay, God doesn't owe you forgiveness. He doesn't owe you mercy. He's gracious to whom He will be gracious. And you see David bowing the knee here, and he's calling out to God, "Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, Lord." Now he's doing that for a reason because David knew some things about God. Okay, David knew some things about the character of God. And about the name that God had made for Himself in this world. You say, what do you mean? Okay, David roots his request for mercy in the character and the nature of God. According to David in verse 1, the God of the Bible is a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. The God of Scripture is the God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. That is awesome, right? That is, his, that is His willingness to forgive, steadfast love. And that's His ability to forgive. He's abundant in mercy. He'll never run out of mercy. His willingness and His ability to forgive sinners. This is who God is. Psalm 130 verse 4. Listen to this. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now that is an interesting combination, right? Because what your sinful, what the sinful world does with the forgiveness of God is they lead, they they let it be a license for sin to do whatever you want. With you, there is forgiveness, so we do whatever we want. But that verse actually says, "With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared." What does that look like? It looks like David bowing down to the God of all mercy, saying, "Lord, be merciful to me. I need your mercy." He's, he's crying out for forgiveness from God. But forgiveness in the Bible is never an easy thing. It's never easy. And we, when we say we need God's mercy, we need more than God's, God having a favorable disposition to us. Than, than God having uh, kind thoughts of us. God's mercy, when He moves in mercy, in, His mercy moves Him to action, to do something. Okay? This is what forgiveness is in the Bible. God does something to us. He doesn't just think about us a certain way. He does something to us. David knows that. Which is why you have these three requests at the end uh, in verses 1 and 2. The first request is blot out my transgressions. Second request is wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Third request is cleanse me from my sin. Now, those phrases are pregnant. They are pregnant and they are pregnant to teach us about the nature of sin. Those phrases tell us something about sin. I want to show you that. David cries out to God, blot out my transgressions. And what he is asking God to do is to take his sinful record. Do you all know what a sinful record is? All the wicked things that you do, they don't go away. They're recorded. Okay, God, he's asking God to take his sinful record and remove it from God's presence. Blot out my transgression. That means that David knows something that we need to know. Our sin is in the presence of God. He sees all that we do. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. According to verse 9. Our sins are literally before God's face. Hide your face from my sins, Lord. That's His prayer. Why should that bother you? That's a terrifying thing. If you are to spend five minutes today thinking about 
all the sin that you that you've even amassed in the past month is like a book before God's face. Not one thing drops out of your sinful record before God. God sees your pornography. God sees your lying. He sees your cheating on your taxes. He sees your flirting with other other people besides your spouse. He sees your anger. He sees your pride. Every sinful act is in His presence. He sees it. And it's like a stain in His presence. And David cries out that it would be blotted away. That it would be blotted away. You ought to spend a lot of time thinking about that in this world. Of how can my sinful record be blotted away from the presence of God. Those are the types of things that should bother you and keep you up at night. Now, God's Word tells us exactly how this happens. We have an advantage that David did not have in the sense that we have more vivid promises to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 2.14 tells us exactly how our sinful record is removed from the presence of God. For Christians, for Christians, here's how it works. Colossians 2.14 says this, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside Nailing it to the cross. Remember when I said a minute ago, forgiveness in the Bible is never an easy thing. To get our sins out of the presence of God, took our sin, it took our sinful record being nailed to the bloody cross of the Son of God in the person of Christ. We know exactly how this works. And David is crying out for this sinful record to be removed. Look at the second, the second phrase. Wash me... Thoroughly from my iniquity. Alright. The first request, blot out my transgressions, that shows us that sin is guilt. It's legal guilt. This request shows us that sin is filth. Guilt and filth. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And this is language that reminds us that our sin is absolutely disgusting to God. Okay? You live in a culture that hates this type of language. Our sin, your sin, is disgusting to God. Your sin is more than God knows you did wrong. God thinks what you have done is wrong is disgusting. It is filthy. Okay? There's a little tagline that I learned in, as, a, as, a, as a, uh, maybe a high school student. And, and these little, you know, fluffy churches run around trying to make people feel better about themselves. And somebody taught me to say, God doesn't make junk. God doesn't make junk. You're not junk. God doesn't make junk. Okay? And I completely understand that there's something, there's an inappropriate self-hate that you can express towards yourself. But this verse tells you, tells me, that we are filthy before God. We are garbage in the sight of the Holy God. We are pollution in the sight of the Holy One, and He will not tolerate it. God will not tolerate it. He will remove it from His presence. And the, the, the more you make of sin, the more you make of Jesus. Because we just sang it a minute ago. Y'all remember that line in Colby's song? Thou for filthy sinners slain. Thou for filthy sinners slain. So we're down here and we're seeing what God says about our sins. We're the filthy ones. And Jesus Christ, the exalted one, the righteous one, stoops down to save not good ones, not righteous ones, but the filthy. God's rebellious, filthy creation. Sin is filth. Sin is pollution in the sight of God. And David cries out 
that he would be washed from it. That he would be washed from it. This really tells us how you should think and feel about sin. How should you think about sin? You are guilty in the sight of God. Your sinful record is in His presence. How should you feel about sin? How should you feel about sin? You should hate it. You should see it as disgusting. You should see it as pollution. Okay? Sometimes we just allow people to get by with language like, yeah, everybody sins. Yeah, everybody sins. That is not conviction of sin. Conviction of sin is you knowing that you're a sinner and you hating it. And you hating it. You seeing it as filthy in God's sight. The third phrase. He says, cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me from my sin. And that language, that clean and unclean language, has an Old Testament context that means fit and unfit for the presence of God. It's the ceremonial law. Clean and unclean. Okay, so what David is praying here is that God would make him fit for his presence. Look at verse 7. He says this in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. That's another item of the ceremonial law. Okay, hyssop. What is hyssop? This was used in the cleansing of lepers in Israel under the ceremonial law. I'm going to read you this verse in Leviticus. This is what David is asking God to do. Leviticus chapter 14, verse 6 and 7. Listen to this. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Hyssop. And then that verse says, Then, then he shall pronounce him clean. So that's how lepers were cleansed in Israel. They were washed with hyssop and the ceremonial washing. And then a priest of God looked at these lepers and said, You are now clean. That is what God is. Uh, David is asking God to do. He's asking God to be His priest. The one that washes away His moral filth. He sees Himself as a moral leper in the sight of God. And He's asking God, Make me clean. Don't cast me away. For, I want to be fit for Your presence. God, come be my priest. Come wash me with hyssop. And then David wants to hear God say the same thing those priests heard, those, those lepers heard. He wants to hear God announce the word of pardon. The word that you are now clean. That's what he wants to hear from God. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. He wants to hear God say something. He wants to experience God's forgiveness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So he's under massive conviction from God that feels like bones being snapped in your body. And he is crying out, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me, Lord. Pronounce me clean. If you have ever had any doubts in your life as to what repentance looks like, what does it look like? This is what it looks like. A heart that says, Lord, I am guilty. Lord, I am filthy. And Lord, I am unfit to be in your presence. Lord, have mercy on me. That's what repentance looks like. That's what it looks like when repentance falls on sinners. Okay? This is point number two on your outline. What else does it look like? It looks like honestly confessing sin to the God who sees all things. And that's verses 4 and, four and 6. Honestly confessing sin to the God who sees all things. Confession 
Now that's a word that we use a lot of times that I'm not real sure that we adequately understand what it means. Okay? And here's what, here's what I'm saying. Maybe this definition would fly with, with many of you that confession is just telling God what you did wrong. Okay? That's what it means to confess your sin. And here's what I want you to know. Confession, here's the definition. It literally means to repeat something, to say something again, to say the same thing, to confess. Okay? So by definition, confession demands that something precedes confession. Right? If it means to say again, who said it the first time? If it means to repeat, who's talking before? Okay? And here's what I want you to see. Confession is always a response to the conviction of God the Holy Spirit. Confession means to come into agreement with God about what God says about your sin. To say the same thing. To repeat what He says. Okay? And what that means for us is that biblically you cannot, conf- you cannot confess without conviction. Okay? If you are not disturbed about your sin, you can't take up the prayer of David in Psalm 51 and read it like a parrot and say, yeah, I confess my sins to God. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You just said some words. You didn't come into agreement with what God said about your sin. Confession is a response to conviction of the Holy Spirit every single time. It's required. Okay, Conviction is a prerequisite for confession. Alright? David is under conviction. David is under conviction. In verse 3, he says, My sin is always before me. It's ever before me. Okay, That's language like he cannot get it out of his mind. That's what conviction feels like. Okay, Anybody in here ever experienced something like this? That you have specific acts of rebellion in your life that are unconfessed, unrepented of? And what does the God who loves us do? He pursues us with His discipline and His conviction falls on us. And what? We cannot get it out of our mind. Okay? There are things that play over and over again like a mental rerun in our mind and we cannot get it out of there. And the Holy Spirit will torment us. Okay? He will make us miserable in our sin. And this is, this is what's happening to David. He is under conviction and he is beginning to see the true nature of his sin. Okay? He thought, he thought uh, I don't think this is reading too much into this, he thought that the thing with Bathsheba would be enjoyable. Okay? He thought that the thing with Uriah would soon it would be forgotten about. And he thought that taking this woman as his wife would finish it off. But he was wrong. Okay? And now he's beginning to understand the true nature of his sin. So what do you mean? In verse 3, this needs to be one of the favorite ways, your favorite ways that sin is described in Scripture. It's called transgression. Sin, according to verse 3, is transgression. You say, what does that mean? Transgression is deliberate. Acts of rebellion against God. God draws the line in the sand and says, don't walk across it. And you walk across it whistling. Okay, Defiant rebellion against God. This is getting to the true nature of sin. Okay, It is rebellion against God. Not, oops. Not, I really didn't mean to do that. Yeah, you did. Yes, you actually did. The, the true nature of sin is defiant Rebellion against God, not an accident. Sin is literally an assault on God's authority. There are many who have gone before us and they say things like, sin is like cosmic treason against God, the King of Kings. Okay? Where you try to dethrone the Holy One and sit on the throne yourself. 
sin is rebellion. And David is getting awakened to this, that the things that he's done were defiant rebellion against God. He walked straight across the line and rebelled against the Holy One. You have to understand this about sin. Okay? Look at me for just a second. I want this to be so clear to you. Sin is not defined by what, mainly by what you do. Okay? And, 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 and grievous sins are, are you do these things. And small sins are you do these things. Sin is not mainly defined about what you do. Sin is mainly defined of who you sin against. Okay? What makes sin so wicked that God the righteous judge pours out condemnation on sinners for all eternity? What makes it so wicked? It's the one who sinned against. It's the one who sinned against. God the Holy One. God the righteous judge is the one who is offended in our rebellion. And many of you have heard this analogy before. But I want you to imagine that, that you in blatant defiant rebellion, that you walk up to the mayor of Jackson and you punch him right in the face. And you smack him right in the nose. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to do some jail time and you're probably going to get roughed up by the police on the way there. Right? All right? Same analogy. You go and you hit Barack Obama square in the nose. Square in the nose. What do you think is going to happen to you now? Okay? You might end up getting waterboarded in some dark closet somewhere. Right? The most powerful man in the world, you just hit him in the face. Defiant rebellion. It is not going to go well for you. Right? Anybody agree with that? Now, that analogy times five million that the man of dust, the created ones, created in the image of God, we rise up and we spit in the face of the God who created all things with the word of His mouth, the God who, the God who is good, the God who, who has never, never failed us. And we rebel against Him in, in blatant, defiant rebellion. Does this make sense to you? This is what makes it so wicked that you have rebelled against the Holy One that loves you. The Holy One that created all things. This is what makes sin exceedingly sinful. This is what conviction looks like when God begins to awaken sinners to the true nature of what they've done. And they begin to understand, God, You are righteous in punishing me for my sin because I am a rebellious one and I have rebelled against the Holy One. David even prays in verse 3 and 4. He said, God, You're blameless in Your judgment. God, if You decide to judge me, if you decide to judge me in court, God, you will win every single time. You are blameless in judgment. You are just, God, you are just to punish me throughout all eternity. Repentant sinners understand this because they understand the nature of their sin. They don't have little sins. They have massive sins in the presence of God. The nature of true sin. These tormenting thoughts about specific rebellions in David's life lead him to begin to confess his sins to God, to say it again, to agree with God. Look at verse 4. He says, I have sinned and done what was evil in your sight. I want you to notice that he takes personal responsibility for his sins. It's not, yeah, we all sinned. It's I sinned. I did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he's coming into agreement with what God has said about sin. He didn't do an oops in the sight of the Lord. He did evil. Okay? He's taking personal responsibility 
for what he's done. Real personal guilt. This is not like Adam and Eve in the garden. As soon as God confronts them in their sin, the man says, the woman made me do it. woman says, the serpent made me do it. That's the blame game. Okay? That's what it looks like when you are not repentant of what you've done. That you begin to make it sound better than it is. You don't call it evil, you call it an oops. Or you don't, you don't bear the weight and own your sin in the presence of God. You begin to blame it on yourself. What I mean by that is your sin is your sin. Your sin is not the fault of your spouse, your kid, your boss, your co-worker. It's not the, the fault of any circumstances in your life that have you stressed out. Your sin is your sin. You have to own it in the presence of God. Five times in three verses, David says, My sin, my transgression, my iniquity, my sin. It's mine, Lord. I own it. I did that. That's what it looks like to confess your sins before God. We also must confess our sinful nature to the Lord. And I want you to see this in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. David is beginning to understand something that you have to understand. Sin is not just something that David does. Sin is something that David is. Okay? Do you know this about yourself? Sin is not just something that you do. Sin is who you are. This is what he begins to confess to God. And what that means is that the, the thing with Bathsheba and the thing with Uriah isn't, isn't a freak accident for David. He knows that it's rooted in who he is. Okay, From the moment of conception. Do you know this about yourself? Do you know this about yourself? You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Okay, You are not a bad tree because you bear bad fruit. You bear bad fruit because you are a bad tree. Do you understand that? The root is defiled. The very core of our humanity. And David says it happens even from the moment of conception. So he's taken his confession a step farther than his specific acts of of rebellion, he is confessing that to the core he is sinful. To the core he is sinful. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yes, even your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? All of us joining hands in this room have a nature in us that is literally shot through with sin. It is literally shot through with sin. And that shouldn't make you feel better that we're all in the same boat. Okay, We are defiled to the core before God. In sin, our mother has conceived us. The reason I say that, a lot of people try to make themselves feel better with this type of language. I was born like this. I've always been like this. There's never been a time in my life where I didn't want to do this specific thing. And they begin to try to downplay their sin as though God's going to give them a free pass. And I want you to notice that David does the exact opposite. Okay, He does the exact opposite. He uses this type of language to intensify his confession. He's not saying it, it's God's fault. God made me like this. From the moment of conception, I wanted to do these evil things. He's saying, Lord, I am, I am filthy in Your presence, and to the core, I am defiled. To the core, I am defiled and sinful. Have mercy on me. Verse 6, 
David is sinful on the inside. The place, in verse 6, where God desires truth. Verse 6, look at it. The place where God desires truth is the place where David is sinful. Do you see that? God desires one thing, but you're a completely different thing. Do you know that there's a massive gap in what God requires your heart to be, what God requires your insides to be, and what you actually are? There's an infinite gap, a massive gap, between what God requires of us and what we actually are. And we have zero excuses before God. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that God makes us to know right and wrong. God makes us to know right and wrong. He teaches us wisdom in the secret heart. Literally the hidden inner place. That is a reference to the conscience of human beings. God alarms, awakens, teaches sinners the standard of God, the moral standard of God on the inside. Okay, You know right from wrong because your conscience bears witness to it. God has made you aware of His standards, of His wisdom. That means that, the, that God desires one thing, you're a completely different thing, and you have no excuse for it before God. You, you have no excuse. This is who David is, a sinner to the core, and this leads him to cry out for more than forgiveness. David cries out for more than forgiveness from God. Look at point number three on your outline. Repentance looks like pleading for renewal to the God of all power. Verses 10 through 15. Pleading for renewal to the God of all power. David wants forget more than forgiveness and so does everyone who truly repents of their sin. Do you understand that? What does it look like when conviction and repentance begins to fall on our hearts? It looks like this. Lord, change me. Make me different. I'm sinful to the core. And he, and he cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me. Do something in me, Lord Jesus. He uses the same word create that's used in the creation account in Genesis 1. He is asking God to unleash the same power that God displayed in creation on His insides. That God would, in a, that God would create, would form something new inside of him. So when is the last time that something like this went down in your life? Okay? Not just wanting forgiveness from God, but such a conviction falls on you that you ask God to make you different. That you ask God to do something on the heart level in your life to deal with the very root that that makes you go towards sinful things. This is what repentance looks like. We have to learn this. We have to learn this. David is asking for renewal. He is not asking for regeneration. Okay, Lost people should pray like this. Amen, yes and amen. But what I'm telling you is Christians should pray like this. You should call out to God and ask God to make you new. Okay, You should ask God to do things in your heart to rid you of this sinful nature. Christians should pray like this. David's asking God to revive him. And at the very foundation of this work, what, what, would, what is it going to look like when God answers that prayer? At the very foundation, David says it's going to look like a restoration of joy in God. What does it look like when God unleashes His power on the hearts of, of sinners that are broken over their sin? And He answers their prayer. They begin to, to rejoice in and take joy in God and His grace toward them. Their, the joy of their salvation is restored. 
David did not lose his salvation, but he did lose the joy of his salvation. And so can we. So can you. And when that happens, it has to be restored. Okay? Joy in Jesus. We are in a war for this. And you hear this a lot here. Joy in Jesus. You're in a war to see Jesus rightly, to see His glory, to see the glory of His gospel. And this is not optional for you. Okay? Joy is not icing on the cake of the Christian life. It's not an option. God demands it. And it's offensive to Jesus when we are not joyful in Him. We're not joyful in His glorious gospel. It's not optional. It has to be restored. It has to be restored. God is sovereign over this restoration of our joy, but we are responsible for it. What I mean is He's praying because He wants God to do something inside of Him, but He is responsible for His lack of joy in Jesus. It's sinful. So what would it look like if that hits you rightly? It would look like you hitting your face and calling out to God and saying, God, do something in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And asking God to move in your heart. I just want to underline something. Do you realize how dangerous of a place that you are in when you as a Christian are walking with a lack of joy in Jesus Christ? With coldness to Christ? With boredom to Christ? Do you realize how dangerous of a place that you are. In that place, you are primed and ready for temptation. And in that place, idols begin to creep into your heart and you begin to lure after other things besides Jesus. That's how it happens. That's why David is not crying out to God for sexual purity. Okay? Why? Because it starts way before that. And in this joy in Jesus and being so satisfied in Christ and what He's done that your mind doesn't even gaze toward these things. Because I know the highest joy. I have the treasure in the field. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When God restores joy, I want you to notice two things that will happen in our life. And this is awesome. Okay? Praise God that we can trust God for this. And the first thing is in verse 13. What happens when God restores the joy of our salvation? And the first thing is we will joyfully work for the Lord. Joyfully working for the Lord. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. You want to be an evangelist for Jesus? You want to preach His gospel to all the nations? You want to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ? Number one priority on your list is to get yourself as happy as you could possibly be in Jesus Christ and His Gospel. If you are going to preach the glories of Christ among the nations, you actually have to believe that Jesus is glorious. If you're going to preach the good news of the grace of God among the nations, you actually have to believe that this Gospel is mind-blowingly good. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. The second thing that will happen is we will joyfully worship our Lord. We will joyfully worship our Lord. Anybody tried to do some of the internal things in Scripture? Like, for example, you know, a parent tells a kid to jump and they can jump. Okay? And, and there's some external things that we can do. Anybody ever tried that with the internal things of Scripture? That you just sweat and grind it out. Be patient. And you're just trying and like, you know, or be joyful. Well, try this one. Try to gut this one out. Worship God. You know what that means? That means in your heart that you consider God the object of supremacy. 
better than all things, worthy of all praise, valuable above anything else. Try to fake that one. Try to muscle that one up. Okay? The, we talked about this before. Worship is always a response to us seeing God rightly. And one of the things that happens, praise God for this, that we can trust God for this, that when He does His work in our hearts, making us joyful in Jesus Christ and His Gospel, we worship God. It's like He takes our lips that are sealed closed and He breaks them apart and we sing aloud to God and we praise God. This is what it looks like when God answers that prayer. Then we come to the final point on your outline. Repentance looks like bringing a broken heart over sin to God. You see this in verse 16 through 19. Bringing a broken heart over sin to God. Now this is a good paradox. I want you to see it. We're almost done. In verse 16, in verse 16, something is said. And it basically says this, that God is not pleased with sacrifices and offerings. Now you should actually scratch your head about that. Okay? Say, so what do you mean? That's actually an interesting thing because God is the one who instituted sacrifices and burnt offerings in His law. So what does this mean? God is not pleased with sacrifices and offerings. He's the one that instituted them. To make it even more scratch your head, verse 19 says the exact opposite. That God is now delighting in sacrifices and burnt offerings. Okay? So what is going on here? What do we need to understand about the God of the Bible? What makes the sacrifices in verse 16 prohibited and the sacrifices in verse 19 acceptable? What's happening here? Look right in the middle. Verse 17. This is the difference. This is the difference. Acceptable sacrifices hang or fall on this condition. Verse 17. A broken and contrite heart. This is a prerequisite for a sacrifice being acceptable to God. And what this means, drive this in your soul. The God of Scripture will reject every sinner that attempts to come to Him without brokenness over sin. It will be an unacceptable sacrifice. The sacrifices of God are brokenness and contrition. These are what God doesn't despise. This is a requirement for forgiveness. Repentance is a requirement by God for forgiveness. Okay? A requirement. But the great hope of this psalm, what's the other side of that? That God's going to cast out all who come to Him without brokenness over sin and contrition. What's the other side of that? God accepts sinners that approach Him with a brokenness over sin. It says these He won't despise. That's the God of Scripture. That's the hope that we hold out for you today. That if you are outside of Jesus Christ, we have good news for broken sinners. Good news that Jesus offers salvation to broken sinners. We don't have any good news if you're not a broken sinner this morning. We have no good news for you. Jesus came to save the filthy. Jesus came to save sinners. And God accepted David's broken-hearted plea for mercy. But there's something I need to say beyond this, okay? I don't want you to understand what just got unpacked from the Word of God and for you to understand that God forgives sinners on the basis of their brokenness and the fact that they are really sorry for what they've done. That is a lie, okay? 
Brokenness, repentance is the means by which God forgives sinners. But the ground, the basis by which God forgives sinners is a completely different thing. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. We're going back to David's story with Nathan. And in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David turns to the prophet and he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says to David, mind-blowing, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. How can God the righteous judge do that and remain righteous? What is the grounds on which God is forgiving sinners and telling murderers and adulterers like David, I put away your sin? What's the grounds that he's operating on? And if you say, well, David's really sorry. What if you're Uriah's dad and he just murdered your son? And that judge says, well, you know what? I know he murdered your son, but he was really sorry for it. You think that satisfies Uriah's dad's conscience? It's an inappropriate ground for forgiveness. It's not the ground in Scripture. So what, on what basis and what grounds does God forgive sinners? What makes what God just did right there okay and righteous and just? And for this, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3. The basis on which God forgives sinners is, a, is the dead Son of God nailed to a bloody cross. Can you imagine a stronger basis than that? That God nails His Son Jesus to the cross in order to be just and the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus. You understand this? Romans 3. Our punishment falls on Jesus. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Make this personal. Make this personal. God in Christ Jesus looks at us in Jesus and says the same thing that David heard. Your sins have been put away. You shall not die. How can God tell us that and remain righteous? Because God slaughtered His Son on our behalf. And our punishment fell on another. God didn't sweep His punishment under the rug. It fell on Jesus. It fell on Jesus. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we praise Christ Jesus, the Savior, the Lamb of God, the wrath bearer that takes our sin. This is the grounds on which God extends His forgiveness. At the cross, at the cross of Jesus, God forgives sinners in a just way. He forgives sinners in a way that maintains His righteousness. He does it in such a way that His hands are blameless. His justice is satisfied in the Son of God. And His mercy is poured out on sinners at the cross. This is the grounds on which God grants forgiveness of sinners. But this gift of justification is only given to those who believe. That's the good news of the Gospel this morning. Our good news is that on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ, that God now forgives all who repent and believe. Everyone who repents and believes. The offer is wide open. 
This is the gospel of Jesus. So I want to leave you with two verses. And these two verses tell two different people how to respond to Psalm 51. How do you respond? And the first is this. To the unbeliever in the room. How can you respond to what's just been laid out? Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Hear this as though God were speaking to you Himself. Listen. This is what you need to do. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon That needs to be going off in your brain like a siren. Return to God. Forsake your ways. Come to Christ. And to the believer in the room, to the church of Jesus, how can we respond to Psalm 51? 1 John 1, verse 9. Here's the grace of God towards us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the firm ground that we stand on in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. God, thank You for Your desire that we know Your truth. God, thank You for speaking to humanity and for granting us Your Scriptures, Lord, Your very Word. And God, I pray for Grace Community Church, Lord, I pray for us that You would teach us to mourn sin, that You would teach us to think about indwelling sin, personal sin, rightly, Lord. And God, help us to hate it. Jesus, we pray that You would make us like You. Help us to hate sin and to love righteousness more and more and more. We ask to be formed into Your image, God. And God, for anyone who doesn't know You that heard Your Word today, God, I pray that You would cause Your Word to pierce a soul, God, and that You would come with authority and power, God, and that You would, you would, uh, God, that you would drive away all distractions in their life, little pathetic things that we think about in light of You, in light of eternity. And God, I just pray that You would do exactly what You did to David and that You would make us miserable in our unrepentance, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.